Accelerating to a better future, an insight into innovation at Imperial. Hello and welcome to this edition of Insights, Accelerating to a Better Future, with me, Amanda Carpenter, a series of short podcasts that offer a more in-depth look at the science and thinking behind the main podcast series. Today, we're discussing the complex and difficult subject of cleaner air and transport, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Mark Stettler, Senior Lecturer in Transport and Environment from Imperial College. Mark, hello and welcome and thanks for joining us. Hi, Amanda. So when we think about low carbon transport, I guess most people think about the move from fossil fuel powered vehicles to electric cars. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg and actually has more problems sometimes than solutions, doesn't it? Because it's a it's a very, very big issue, not just reducing our production of those cars, but actually the whole infrastructure and all the other issues that go with it. So from your perspective, where would you start a conversation like this? I think I would start by saying that um, the transport system and the way that we move people and goods around is actually really complex and, and, and complicated. And there's lots of different modes of transport that we use, lots of different types of vehicles. Um, so we use cars, we walk, we fly, we get on a train. And um, in order to decarbonize that system, um, it, it's not going to be one uh, size fits all solution for every type of transport. Um, but we will have to be creative and apply the best solution for the for the for the best application. Um, we've been relatively fortunate over uh, the last couple of centuries in that we've had access to fossil fuels that we've extracted from the ground before we realised the uh, the unintended consequences of, of climate change. And fossil fuels are high in energy density, and and that means they've got a lot of energy for each kilogram of of fuel, um, and that means we can use them across a range of different types of vehicles from road, uh, from passenger cars to, to, to large buses and trucks up to planes. And um, in order to decarbonize, we're going to have to consider a range of different uh, energy vectors. And by that, I mean um, means of storing energy and then using it for um, propelling vehicles. Uh, and, and some energy vectors um, would be more applicable to some types of transport and others would be more uh, more suitable for other types of transport. And so we'll probably end up with a much more diverse mix of, of energy vectors um, within our transport system. And although um, fossil fuels get a, a, a bad press, they are immensely adaptable, aren't they, and efficient. And, and, you know, the internal combustion engine has been a great bonus to the industrial economy for a very long time. And and I think that the problem we have is that, you know, we're all focusing on that banning the sale of those new cars by 2030 in the government's recent announcement. But we haven't quite got the replacement system there yet, have we, to make that transition possible? Presumably one of the issues is about the infrastructure and charging points. Um, but I suppose the other issue is, and it, people keep mentioning this to us here on Planet Board, is, is the actually green cars are not always as green as they seem because there is an essential problem with the battery itself, both the production and its life cycle and and its disposal. Yeah. So on the subject of the internal combustion engine, it certainly has revolutionized the way we did things. It enabled it has enabled us to do much more than than we would otherwise have, have been able to do. I would predict that the internal combustion engine isn't going to die away. And and the reason for that is that on its own, the internal combustion engine by itself is not a bad thing. It's the fact that we're burning 
fossil fuels that we're digging out of the ground and releasing that CO2 that would otherwise be stored in the ground. That, that is the bad thing. And, and so internal combustion engines that are operated on fuels where the life cycle of that fuel does not lead to net CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. So that could be um, sustainable alternative fuels or biomass derived fuels um, could be used in a sustainable way in internal combustion engines. When so, you say biomass, you mean things like the cars and vehicles powered by recycled cooking mm-hmm. oil, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah that's one example. And, and, uh, and we already have a certain proportion, uh, approximately 5% of the fuel that we use in the UK comes from um, biomass derived uh, sources. And, uh, and another good example of, of biomass-derived fuels is ethanol in Brazil, uh, derived from sugarcane. And there are other consequences related to air pollution and, and, uh, and, and other forms of pollution, such as noise pollution, related to internal combustion engines. But, but there's a lot we can do to minimise those effects. On the subject of electric vehicles, you're right in highlighting that there is a trade-off or, I guess, a balance between the um, energy and emissions associated with the manufacturer of a vehicle and those associated with the operation of a vehicle during its lifetime. And to manufacture an electric vehicle with a very large battery, which you might want in order to achieve several hundred miles or kilometers of range, leads to much higher energy consumption and emissions associated with the manufacturer of the vehicle than an equivalent or or like-for-like internal combustion engine vehicle. So electric vehicles with very large batteries do have large emissions associated with the manufacturer. So the overall savings of, of CO2 for, for an electric vehicle with a large battery will be less than an electric vehicle with a smaller battery. Um, during its operation and, and during its, its uh, driving around with a current electricity mix such as in the UK, then electric vehicles are much better in terms of uh, reducing CO2 compared to internal combustion engines using fossil fuels. And so what we want from electric vehicles is is actually not to have really big batteries with with lots of energy and, and emissions associated with the manufacturer and and for most people that would be perfectly fine to have a relatively small battery with a a, a range of say 150 miles or so that would cover more than the majority of, of people's trips and and so the the trade-off or the, the the benefit of electric vehicles depends on the size of the battery and then on the electricity generation mix and the carbon intensity of the electricity. And using those two factors, you can then you know, work out how far you need to drive an electric vehicle, for instance, in order to, to have a net benefit relative to an internal combustion engine vehicle. And order of magnitude for, for the UK, it is approximately, say, anywhere between 20,000 kilometres to 50,000 kilometres, depending on how big that battery is. And, and a smaller distance for smaller batteries. Yeah. And of course, our guests on the main podcast, our colleagues from Breathe, were actually looking at extending the life of the battery using technology and using IT is really important. And Lixia, who were producing biomass fuels. So so we know that there's really good work going on here and we know that there are really um, innovative and exciting solutions. But those are only some of them. I mean, some of the work that you've been looking at um, in the university focus on other forms of transport such as as aircraft and obviously trucks and things that have to go much further distance. And I'm assuming if you've got an aeroplane, you just can't get a battery big enough to power the aeroplane for any distance. Or if you do, there might be no room for either cargo or people. Or is that just naive on my part? No, you're right. I mean, for heavy goods vehicles and aviation, um, you come up against the barrier of extremely heavy batteries if you want to carry 
that energy that you would otherwise carry with diesel for for trucks or or kerosene for 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 planes to carry that amount of energy in battery form is extremely heavy and um for for aircraft that doesn't make sense because you actually want to minimize the the weight that you carry so that you have to produce less lift if you produce less lift that creates less drag and so you have a more efficient flight and so electrification for aircraft is only going to work for very short regional routes and um, that poses a problem then for long-haul flight intercontinental flight and our options there are alternative fuels which have low or zero life cycle co2 those are either um, what are called sustainable aviation fuels that could be derived from biomass they could be derived from fisher trops processes where um, you're essentially creating a, a hydrocarbon fuel from uh, constituent molecules. And those have the benefit of being what are called drop-in replacements so that they can be used in today's aircraft um, without too much trouble. So they don't require they, a huge modification of engines or um, the actual physical part of the plane. Correct, yes. So, so no modification required. Uh, currently, um, there's a couple of types of fuels that are, um, that are allowed to be used at the moment up to 50% blending with conventional fossil kerosene. And so you know, that is one way in which aviation could significantly reduce its emissions. However, there's a constraint on supply and these fuels are more expensive. So other things that are being considered are hydrogen aircraft and, and Airbus recently announced that they were going to uh, look in more detail at hydrogen. Hydrogen has the benefit of being much more energy dense, it can store approximately three times as much energy per kilogram as ke uh, as kerosene. Wow. However, it's not very dense at all. So in order to carry that amount of energy, you need a lot of volume um, and you need very big fuel tanks that are uh, cryogenic because you want this hydrogen stored as a, in liquid form. So very, very cold. So it's good in terms of the amount of weight that you would carry. However, not good in terms of the uh, volume that you take up in the flight. So you'd either need to, if you've got a conventional aircraft, you know, extend it. So you've extended the tube a bit further um, or think about other concepts such as the blended wing body concept where, where you perhaps have more internal volume um, to, to play with. Mark, is there a safety issue associated with hydrogen? Because it is one of those kind of, it's like buzzwords, isn't it? You say hydrogen to people and they think, oh, is that, is that a safe fuel? I mean, is it, could it be safe in an aircraft? Uh, yes, and it has been trialled at small scale in aircraft. Um, that, that is work that's ongoing. Um, as with any fuel, I mean, the, as we've, we've seen over the weekend with a, a major crash in Formula One, you know, if you have a combustible fuel and that releases and there's an there's ignition, um, there's a potential for a fire. And that's true of, of hydrogen, it's true of, uh, of jet fuel, it's true of, of, of mm. petrol as well. So as long as you have, you know, I'm confident that as long as you have the safety uh, and engineering aspect in place, the uh, it, it can be made safe. And and people think back to the the um, Heisenberg disaster and, mm. and and that, but that you know that was early days, and they had a cloth balloon essentially, and that it was very yeah. easy to catch fire. Yeah, and I seem to remember something to do with friction to do with the shafts, but probably shouldn't get there because that's probably a history podcast, not science one. Can I ask you what is your sense of the time scale on all of this? I mean, how quickly could could we be in a place where we're manufacturing alternative hydrogen-based fuels for for either cars or, or air transport? So hydrogen for for cars is, is something at, at the relatively small scale at the moment. I think it's going to be used for long-distance travel, 
and and potentially for trucks there's there's a bit of debate about hydrogen because it's not the most efficient use of energy it actually takes a lot of energy to produce hydrogen and it's done so by taking electricity and splitting water molecules up into uh, hydrogen and and oxygen and that that's not an efficient process so so there's actually a few people around who say hydrogen's not the way to go because because it requires a lot of energy to produce and that means we need more renewable energy if we want to do it uh, low carbon and that means we need more more land for, for wind turbines and etc so that there are a few, a few people that say that hydrogen is not the most effective way to decarbonize transport because of these efficiency issues electrification is more efficient i would say in terms of time scale electrification you know we're, we're looking at say 2030 with the latest government announcement in terms of banning of sales of internal combustion engine only vehicles and um, so that's going to accelerate i think the uptake of electric vehicles and, and i think the sense is that uptake of electric vehicles has been limited by the number of models that have been available and supply issues and the cost and if there's government funding to actually support the the transition and to encourage people to buy then that will help won't it yeah it, going back to aviation hydrogen for aviation is a is a much more longer term thing if new aircraft need to be developed to fit that hydrogen into the airframe new concepts such as blended wing bodies that's decades um, yeah. so-called sustainable aviation fuels offer a much faster pathway however they're still limited by supply and also they need to really show that they are actually sustainable they do lead to a, a net reduction in co2 over the lifetime of that fuel that's really important with any of these alternative fuels that we're talking about that they do actually deliver on what they promise and there's another problem with aviation as well, isn't there? It isn't just the CO2, it's the other negative impacts on the climate that come from actually physically flying around to do with the contrails. I mean, we, we you know, we don't keep you forever, but can you just tell us very briefly what, what that is and why we should be worrying about it? Sure. We're all aware of um, the consequences of burning fuel in aircraft and how that leads to CO2. What we're less aware of, I think, is the climate impact of, uh, of contrails and other emissions from aircraft, such as nitrogen oxides, and, and their effect on uh, the radius balance of the Earth. So what we understand now is that these non-CO2 effects, the majority of it attributed to contrails and the cloudiness that they lead to in the atmosphere, that effect on the climate is more significant than the effect of aviation's CO2 emissions. So it's a larger proportion of the total impact of aviation on the climate than CO2. So they're really significant. And you'll, you, we're talking about contrails. And what we mean by that is these line-shaped clouds that you see um, uh, sometimes in the sky following an aircraft. And sometimes you'll see that they disappear very quickly. Other times they'll, they'll persist and you'll see a whole streak across the sky. Sometimes you'll see patches of the sky with these streaks and others without. And, and what that shows is that the formation of the contrail is highly dependent on the atmospheric conditions. And these, these bright clouds, essentially they're bright ice clouds, can reflect sunlight that's coming into Earth, but can also trap outgoing heat that would otherwise escape to space. And so they have this, both a cooling effect in terms of reflecting sunlight and a warming effect in terms of trapping outgoing heat. And it's the balance of those two effects that determines the sort of whether the the contrail has a warming or cooling effect overall. So that's quite um, apart from any CO2 emission. This is actually, a, 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 they could, they, those clouds themselves could be contributing to, to earth heating. 
absolutely yes and if a contrail happens to persist uh, that means it, it lasts for a long time in the sky it can spread out and, and form large areas of, of clouds cirrus clouds um, and so cover much air, much wider areas and that effect is more than the effect of the co2 however it's not all flights that form these contrails and, and we see that as you know evidenced in the sky when we look up at, at planes and 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 what that that means is that we can we can think about dealing with those flights that do form contrails. And some of our research recently has been targeting strategies, looking at targeted strategies at those flights that do form contrails, which is a much smaller percentage of, of flights, and, and seeing if we can um, change the altitude of those flights by a small amount just to avoid those areas of the atmosphere where contrails would form. And by doing so, we can we can really significantly reduce the warming effect associated with these contrails um, without any significant fuel penalty uh, and increase in CO2 emissions. And so therefore drastically bring down the, the climate impact of flying. And we think that the timescale for doing so would be quicker than engineering some new fuels and, and, and really drastically increasing the supply of sustainable aviation fuels. So, so that's something we're, we're, we're working on. We're really keen to uh, uh, try and push forward. Oh, that's absolutely fascinating. And I think quite hopeful um, because, you know, I suppose one of the answers is for us just all to fly less. And we are obviously flying less during the pandemic and, and maybe those flying less habits will, will stay with us. But they are difficult habits to break. And and people would say that we do need to stay in an interconnected world. So that's absolutely fascinating. And I'd love to talk to you more about that. So when you're a bit further down your research, perhaps we could uh, have you back and, and discuss it in more detail. But thank you for giving us such a, a clear and really accessible explanation to this very complex subject and also for for ending on that moment of hope I think really that we can do something about this so thank you so much for joining us and it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you thanks for having me cheers you've been listening to insights accelerating to a better future to catch other programs in this series visit the Grantham Institute website or you can find them on the planet pod website theplanetpod.com thanks for listening and goodbye Accelerating to a Better Future is a Planet Pod production, co-hosted by Amanda Carpenter and Richard Templer. Our thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and the team at Imperial College London.